Would you please rise as you are able for the reading of the gospel? Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I must say I'm impressed that you made it this morning to the 715 service and how good it is to be here after some of you were here for a late night last night with the youth. Uh, and uh, it was a great night, and uh, you're here this morning, and it's wonderful to be in worship together. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you're catching us right at the midpoint of this Lenten series. It's hard to believe that two weeks from today is uh, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, and we'll be celebrating that day together as, as well as the, the time of worship throughout the week. We miss our youth choir today, but we're very grateful to have our chancel choir with us who is going to give you a taste this morning of their uh, performance that they will share with us on uh, Palm Sunday night in the chapel uh, from a, a very special bluegrass passion uh, musical. And so you'll get a, a taste of that a little bit later. But we're glad you're here as we continue this series that we're calling Crosswords, which features the last words of Jesus. There were seven last words. If you know the combined Gospels, there are three of these phrases that are found in Luke's Gospel, three in John's Gospel, and one which is found in Matthew and in Mark. We mentioned last week that these seven words are all prayerful words. They are prayers that Jesus is praying on Good Friday. For example, the first word, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, that is where Jesus is interceding on behalf of those who have strung him up. He is praying forgiveness on the very ones that nailed him to the tree. The second word, today you'll be with me in paradise, is actually an answer to a prayer that was prayed by one of the dying thieves. It is an assurance and pardon for a prayer that's been prayed. Woman, Behold thy son, son behold thy mother, we talked about last week, the third word, is actually a prayer of provision for two persons with whom Jesus was very close, his mother Mary and his closest friend John. And so what you see in these last words is that Jesus is essentially dying just like he lived. He's facing his death just like he faced his life with mercy and forgiveness and grace. So this morning, the text that Laura has read, we come to what I think may be the most troubling word of all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's difficult to hear. 
It's a form of prayer that has been largely lost in our culture, in our modern sanitized religion. It's a form of prayer called lamentation. You know that word. There's a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. A lament is actually a prayer of complaint or protest that gives voice to our pain. My God, my God, why? If this word sounds familiar to you, it should because you find it not only in Matthew and Mark, but you also find it in the middle of your Bible, in the Hebrew hymn book, the book that we call Psalms, specifically in Psalm 22. In fact, there are those who actually believe that while Jesus was dying on the cross, that now he is reciting Scripture. He is reciting Psalm 22, which if that's the case, I think there's an implicit truth here. And that is this, if you're ever feeling distant or separated from God, what do you do? You turn to the Scripture. You turn to the Bible. This is exactly what Jesus did in his threefold temptation. At each turn, when Satan tempted him at the point of his power, Jesus responded with Scripture. Jesus knew the Bible. Now, it's interesting to me that one-third of the psalms are laments. One-third, 50 of the psalms are protests or complaint prayers. And I think the inclusion of this genre in the Scripture suggests to us that it is okay to complain to God. Now, I hesitate to say that to some of you because some don't need any help with this. But it's okay. In fact, it may be absolutely necessary. I've come to the point that I believe not only in the psalm that says God inhabits our praises, but I think sometimes God inhabits our pain. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament professor who taught at Columbia in Atlanta, refers to lamentations as the language of disorientation. He says, and I quote, it's important for the church to lift up and call attention to the reality of human loss and pain without making moral judgments about whose fault it is. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we live in a culture of blame and shame where as soon as something tragic happens... Rather than simply praying for those affected, we're looking to attach blame. Tom Long, who was here about a month ago, who is retired professor of preaching at Emory University, told a group on Saturday that he was teaching that uh, when he was at Emory, there was a woman who came from Texas to do a PhD. He said she came from a non-conventional church, a non-denominational contemporary church, which she herself described as a happy, clappy church. She had been the worship leader. She led the praise band. And Tom asked her how it was that she happened to come to study at Emory. And she said, I'm concerned that on Sundays in my church, all we sing is praise music, which I love, but a lot of our people are broken And I've decided that the next church that I work for not only must have a praise band, but a lament band. 
In other words, the church is a place where it's okay to complain, to express our authentic heartache and sorrow, where we hold up to God not just the best of ourselves, but the worst of ourselves, the most difficult pieces of ourselves that we try to hide. To deny the language of disorientation in the rhetoric of the church is a perilous thing to our faith because God doesn't deny it himself. In fact, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that even Jesus articulated his own lamentation. Psalm 22 is pretty graphic. If you know that psalm, if you read it from front to back, it depicts not only our universal human dilemma, but it really articulates in a prophetic way the specific experience of Good Friday. I want to give you a little taste of this in Psalm 22. Listen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I'm a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads, and I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my mouth. My hands and feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Huh. Lamenting sorrow. It's hard to hear, really. It's hard to hear in the church. I, I think of something that D.A. Carson once said, there is no attempt, he said, in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when we undergo suffering. They argue with God. They complain to God in the Scriptures. They weep before God. Theirs is not a faith that leads to a dry-eyed stoicism, but to a faith that is so robust that it wrestles with God. I think of the character in Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye. I love the Tevye. You remember the father, the poor Jewish father who's eking out a living in Tsarist Russia, who's, who's just working daily in the drudgery of his annoyances. And, and one day, one morning, his eyes turn to heaven, and with sarcasm, he says to God, I know we're your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? It's a cry of dereliction. It's a collapse of meaning is what it is, lamenting. St. John of the Cross, the 16th century saint of the church, called it the dark night of the soul. Wesley called it the wilderness season. And apparently Jesus knew the feeling to be forsaken. He was forsaken by the religious leaders by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. He was forsaken by his own ethnic kinsmen. He was forsaken by his own neighborhood church in Nazareth. Forsaken by the Roman justice system, by his followers, friends. In fact, he was denied, betrayed, abused, mocked, stripped, scourged, railroaded, and nailed. But by far worse than the physical pain that he endured on Friday was the distress 
of abandonment. You know that feeling? I remember seeing it. Sherry and I were serving in a church in Atlanta, and one of our women was over at Crawford Long Hospital, Midtown, Emory Midtown Hospital. She was dying of terminal cancer. She was fairly young. She was married. She had a deep faith. She was loved by the community. Her husband was agnostic, and I remember the morning they called and said, could you please come to the hospital? He's off the rails. I said, what's going on? They said, he's cursing God. He's in the waiting room. He's scaring the people there. Would you come? And I said, yes. I came. They were right. (laughs) He was pretty scary. And I listened to his anger. He was literally cursing God. And then he turned to me in front of the waiting room and said, you're the preacher. What have you to say about this? And I said, I can understand why you're angry. I said, I am too. In fact, on the way here this morning, I was having words with God myself. And frankly, I'm impressed that you and God are still talking. And suddenly, his anger turned to tears. And everybody in that room realized that he didn't need anybody to explain his pain. He needed somebody to validate it. He needed to lament. And God allows it. You know, I've discovered, I've discovered in all these years of ministry that God really doesn't need us to be his defense attorney. <laughs> he needs us to be an envoy, to befriend the forsaken, and to legitimize the need. And that's what Jesus is doing. The repetition of his address to God underscores the intensity of his pain. My God, my God, he says. Notice also that though Jesus typically in his prayer life refers to God very affectionately as Abba, Daddy, not so here. God. There's some distance there. There's some separation there. And at the same time, however, Jesus is not checking out. He's not defecting in his faith. Notice the pronoun, my God. You see that? My God. He's not deserting. He's lamenting. And then comes the question. It's inevitable, isn't it? Why? Why this? Why the cross? Why why me? Why have you? Notice he's not complaining about God. But to God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting because Jesus knew it was coming, or at least he seems to in the garden. And in fact, he predicted Good Friday three times. And yet the experience doesn't remove the question, does it? The hardest questions I've ever been asked, you've ever been asked, are not what, where, when, how. Those are pretty easy but why? why? Why the shooting? Why in California shooting the very ones who are helping you? Why Parkland? Why the children? Why the violence? The inclusion of Job, by the way, which is called wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, 
The inclusion of Job actually reaffirms the need, the human need, to ask the question. Now, I have known those all my life in the church who would say, ours is not to question, but that's not even biblical. Doubt is not a sign of a lack of faith. Fred Beekner was right when he said doubts are the ants in the pants of the faithful. They get us moving. The truth is, and Lane said it in his prayer, God isn't distant from us. God doesn't forsake his own. Jesus made a promise to his disciples on the night before he died, on the day we call Maundy Thursday. Maundy, Latin word means mandate. He's giving a new mandate, love one another. And he says to his friends on the eve of his death, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not forsake you. I will never leave you. Even when your emotions are raw and your nerves are spent, he's with us. I was in a Bible study this week. And some, we were studying this text, and someone mentioned, I'd never thought about this, someone mentioned, isn't it interesting that after this lament in Psalm 22, why hast thou forsaken me, it is followed with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. <laughs> why? Because thou art with me. With me. John Frame, who's one of our members, John and I are going to Beirut this week to Lebanon. He left yesterday. I'm going this afternoon. It's a part of our Middle East initiative. We're going to represent you in a consultation in which we're collaborating with NGOs and mission agencies to try to help the church help those who are being persecuted because of their faith. People who are feeling forsaken, actually, <laughs> by kinsmen, by government, by the church, by the world, probably even by God. Lebanon is a nation of four million people. One million of them are Syrian refugees. That's 25% refugees. I'm told that one in three is a refugee either from Iran, Iraq, or Syria. And politics is not going to fix this. And violence is not going to solve it. Suffering love will do <laughs> Next Thursday, we'll have the privilege, John and I, representing you, of taking to several communities food vouchers. We've been collecting money for them and prayer blankets that some of you have made so that we can legitimize their lament <laughs> and share their suffering. Christianity Today did a story recently on a teacher poet who taught at Stanford and at Northwest. His name is Christian Wyman. At age 39, this young man was diagnosed with an incurable disease. He wrote very frankly about the agonizing effects of his illness and his treatments. Listen to what he said. 
I have had bones die and bowels fail. This is a lament. I've had joints lock in my face, arms and legs so that I couldn't eat, I couldn't walk. I have passed through pain I have never imagined, pain that seemed to incinerate all my best thoughts of God and to leave me sitting in the ashes alone. When the diagnosis came, Wyman was a rising star in the literary world and the editor of the prestigious poetry publication. And though Wyman confessed his faith early on had evaporated in the blast of modernism and secularism to which he was exposed to in college, he said, it was my diagnosis that started my journey ultimately back to God. It wasn't a particular doctrine, he said, that drew me back to faith. It was finding friendship in a suffering Savior. He said, and I quote, I'm a Christian today because of that moment on the cross where Jesus, drinking the dregs of human bitterness, cried out, my God, my God, why? me. The point is, he said, is that God is with us, not beyond us, not above us, but with us. And in the face of my pain, what I figured out is I really don't want the answers. I want a person. And I discovered in the person of Christ, that there is no other substitute for that kind of presence. Last word. Sherry and I took a group to Israel a few years ago. We were living in Roswell and we took a group from our church. We walked where Jesus walked. It was amazing. We went to Caesar Maritime where Pilate's marker was found, validating the fact that he did live and he was the governor in Judea. We went up to Galilee, the hills of Galilee. What a marvelous experience. We went to Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. We saw in Bethlehem the traditional site of where he was born. We went to Capernaum, where he ministered. We went to Bethsaida, where he chose five of his 12 disciples. We took a boat on the Sea of Galilee and sang our songs together. And then we came down south to Jerusalem and we walked what they call the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. We saw the place where the soldiers mocked him and beat him. We were discussing on the way home on the flight the whole experience. And one of our men who was with us was actually the building chair. We were building a sanctuary back home and he was with us, and I said, Bill, he's a Georgia Tech guy, so he's really bright, engineer. And I said, Bill, what did, this, what did this trip mean to you? And he thought a moment. He said, it's hard to put it into words. He said, it's kind of life-changing, to be honest, but not in the way I expected. I said, what do you mean? He said, I came over here expecting to see a God, and what I saw was a man. And seeing the humanity of God in Jesus has changed my life. And it has for me. 
and it has for you. In the lament of Jesus on a cross, we find the nearness of God who has become our salvation, which we seek to share with others. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? But drops of tears can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. I hope it's all you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.